Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Sarah Schulman is a novelist, a playwright, a screenwriter, an activist, and a historian of HIV-AIDS. Her new book, Let the Record Show, is an oral history of ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which she joined in New York shortly after its founding in 1987. The book has been praised as a tactician's Bible, part oral history, part activist's roadmap, a riveting compendium of stories of activism that manages to succeed despite all odds. It's also an experiment in historical narrative, telling the story of ACT UP New York, not chronologically, but through key campaigns and flashpoints that foreground little known stories of women and people of color. In the end, those stories illustrate ACT UP's profound impact on public awareness and public policy in ways that continue to reverberate today. I spoke to Sarah Schulman over Zoom from her home in New York. Well, first of all, um, thank you for giving me the chance to read your book, which is just fabulous. Uh, I mean, I've read it all 760 odd oh, wow. pages of it, and it's, <laughs> it's so gripping and so moving. And I thought maybe we could start off literally at the beginning with the first sentence in the book, which is that this is a book in which all people with AIDS or HIV are equally important. So from the outset, you make it clear that you're intending the book in part as a, as a corrective to um, predominant images of AIDS activism in general and ACT UP in particular. And I wanted to invite you to say a bit more about that. Well, you know, at the time, so ACT UP was founded in 1987. And at the time, the media, the private sector, and the legal system were entirely white and male. And so when you look at media coverage from ACT UP at the time, white male reporters would come, they would see white men, they would interview them, and only certain kinds of stories got told. But actually, even the range of white men in ACT UP was much, much broader than it has been represented. And so many of the most important campaigns that ACT UP ran are just have been forgotten by history. In recent years, we've seen a, a real narrowing. Uh, a lot of that is because of the formal requirements that are put on commodified work today. So for example, when my collaborator, Jim Hubbard, decided to do a film about ACT UP, which he did in 2012 called United in Anger, we went to film funding sources to try to get support for the documentary. And they would say, a documentary must have five to six characters on a journey. And Jim would be, no, no, that's not what happened. This is a story of a group and we couldn't get funding. So there's just a lot of pressure to really reduce down to this American sort of white heroic individual in the John Wayne tradition, you know, in telling these stories. But actually uh, the success of AIDS activism broadly, of which ACT UP is a part, 
is it has to do with coalitions and large numbers of different kinds of people doing different actions in different realms at the same time. So the, the source of the book, or one of the sources of the book, the kind of bedrock of the book is the interviews, the 188 interviews that, that you and Jim Hubbard conducted over um, a 17 year period. And, and I wondered if you could take us back to 2001 when the kind of germ of that um, idea um, evolved between the two of you and just what well, was actually it? actually starts much earlier. I would go back to 1982. Uh, I was like a girl reporter for these small feminist and gay newspapers of the time. And at, and at that time I was going to City Hall, the mayor was Ed Koch, and the issue was why we didn't have a gay rights bill in New York City. And that's when AIDS was first identified as a pattern by science, this 1981. Although we now know that AIDS was 100, is 100 years old by the time we identified it. So I was sort of on the scene as a reporter and I just started covering it as it was happening. And it was very chaotic. I mean, I covered mostly social justice issues related to AIDS. I covered pediatric AIDS, the use of placebo for infants, um, women being excluded from experimental drug trials. Home I did the first piece on homeless people with AIDS. But I also covered stories like the closing of the bathhouses which really shows you how chaotic the coverage was because of course women were not allowed in bathhouses, you know, but it was like reporters were dying, editors were dying. My editor at the Village Voice, Robert Massa, did my edit in his pajamas at home because he was too sick to go to work. Nobody knew what the stories were. The mainstream press was not covering it. We were all volunteer journalists. We were not being paid. So it was very, very chaotic kind of coverage. So for those first five years or so, that's what I was doing. And in that time, 40,000 people died of AIDS in the United States. ACT UP is founded in 1987 uh, in March. I joined in July. So then, you know, ACT UP had a split in 1992. The organization diminished. 1996 is the protease inhibitors, which are the good medications. And people started to sort of retreat back into their lives. People who thought that they were going to die did not die. They had to put their lives back together and everybody kind of went off in their own way. Then you have the internet revolution and ACT UP completely disappeared because none of our materials were digitized. So in 2000, if you Googled ACT UP, you would find almost nothing. And people who were doing writing on AIDS, which was very little at that time, um, they were using the New York Times as their source material, which we called the New York Crimes. So by 2001, ACT UP was really forgotten. And that was then the official 20th anniversary of AIDS, because everyone uses the 1981 date. And I was listening to the radio and the guy said, um, at first America had trouble with people with AIDS and then they came around. And I was like, oh no. You know, this is going to be one of these naturalized progress narratives when actually the truth is that thousands of people fought until the day they died to force this country to change against its will. So Jim and I had already been collaborating since 1987 when we had founded the Mix Festival, which was the queer experimental film festival that lasted for 33 years. It only was came to the, its demise through COVID. And we decided that we would start interviewing surviving members of ACT UP New York. Now, Irvashi Vad, who is a 
very beloved leader of the gay movement in the United States was working at the Ford Foundation at the time. And she really had a big vision for this project and she gave us money and we started interviewing. So we started this website, actuporalhistory.org. We put up the interview transcripts for free. We put up five minute streaming video and we've had over 14 million hits to our website. But our hope was that academics would take these transcripts, which we made open access and analyze the contents, but it never happened. We kept waiting and waiting for somebody to come along and they never did. And then we tried to find someone to do it and we couldn't find anybody. And then the, the bad histories started coming out, you know, like the five white men who saved the world and this type of thing. And they were getting highly rewarded and it was like a state of emergency. And so Jim and I decided that I needed to write the book. So then I spent about three years rereading the interviews that I had conducted and sort of cohering tropes and writing the book. I mean, it struck me that, you know, there are, well, first of all, the stages of discussion around the book, because it's so rich and there's much, and there's many directions that we could take. There's the, the stories, the actual meat of the book, the stories that you weave together. There's the process of you and Jim gathering those oral histories in the first place. And then there's the process of, of selection for you as a writer and the crafting of it into a, into a narrative. And, and I was particularly interested in the introduction when you talk about looking for models for what you were going to, for the archive effectively that you were going to create. And these two different Holocaust archives that gave you kind of sense of two different ways of going about eliciting testimonies. And, and I wonder if you could say a bit about that as well. Well, also, I mean, before I get to that, you know, I had read a couple of books when I was younger that really influenced me. One was Taylor Branch's book, Parting the Waters, which is also this mammoth analysis of strategies and tactics. So I had a model for that. And another was a book by Sarah Evans called Personal Politics that was about women, white women going into feminism coming out of SNCC, uh, the civil rights movement. And hers was a lot about relationships and emotional experiences as well as political analysis. So I had those two books, but it's very, very difficult to get activist information, to gather real concrete information about what movements strategies were is almost impossible. And since Taylor Branch's book, I hadn't seen anything that had really cohered in that way. When we started the um, oral history project, we looked at the Spielberg Shoah project where he had 1500 interviewers. They all asked the same questions. And the Shoah project was designed to refute Holocaust revisionism, which was really uh, in flourish at that time. And Holocaust revisionism is a very interesting just, you know, delusion because the people who did the Holocaust say that they did it. It's a third party saying that it never happened. So the interviews are very focused on the moment of atrocity and the moment of trauma and this kind of thing. But we were more attracted to the Fortunal family had an archive at Yale that was much smaller, but they asked people who they were before the Holocaust. And that appealed to us because one of the things that we were interested in was looking at the story experience first, you know, through the people, 
who were these people who created this incredible thing? It's easy to say a group did something, but that's really not accurate. You know, things happen because individuals make decisions and take actions and have relationships that produce these outcomes. And that also, we were very interested in the question of what do these people have in common? That was something that really drove us. So we went on that model. So when we first started doing the interviews in 2001, we were, were still on cassette, video cassettes. And so the, each cassette was 40 minutes and we would spend the first 40 minutes talking to the person about who they were before. And so in the book, I have a little bit of that. But when you, the book is like, I don't have footnotes, but I have something better, which is that I link the reader to the full transcripts of every interview. So they can actually go and compare themselves and, um, and understand a little bit more about who each person was. Yeah, I mean, what was that process like for, for you sort of crossing that line? Well, maybe it's not crossing line because you've been a reporter as well as an activist, but, right. but going back to people after you know, 10, 15, 20 years had passed and <laughs> eliciting their experiences. It was pretty easy because people who were in ACT UP are very bonded to each other, even people who disagree because we've had a unique human experience, which is that we've worked with other people and accomplished progressive change, which very few people have actually experienced, although many people have tried. And that experience really bonds you. And then also the, the constant death and the dying and the trauma and the suffering that we all either witnessed or experienced in our 20s is also extremely bonding. So um, you know, for 17 years, no one ever refused to answer a question. You know, even people with whom I really disagreed, it was a very much done in good faith and people are very proud of what they did and they wanted to make record. You know, so it was a really, I think it was a really positive experience. And once you came to kind of go back over that three year period when you were going back over the transcripts, back over the interviews, how did you make your decisions about how to shape the material? Well, one thing I knew from the beginning was that, well, let me just say that I'm a novelist primarily, and I've written like a lot of novels. I was like 12 or something like that. And some of them are highly experimental. Some of them are realist novels. I, I work in all kinds of forms, but I have a lot of experience with form. And I also have been involved with experimental film for three decades. So I really have a lot of skill, I think, in showing how sometimes a formal invention can reveal truths that conventional narrative cannot contain. And this seemed to be one of those cases because to tell this story chronologically would have been inaccurate. So much happened at the same time. There was so much simultaneity and there's so many tropes going on that I realized I had to have some kind of horizontal structure. So I started to cohere key moments or key themes or key tropes. And I lay that out pretty much in the first half. And then the end is chronological because it's the demise of ACT UP. And I wanted to, although ACT UP still exists, but it's um, deterioration. And I wanted people to understand how, which actions were consequential and how they led, what the order of events was. But like I was rereading the interviews and like, for example, one thing I noticed was that people would say, oh yeah, I was hanging around the lesbian and gay center. And I said, who are all those people over there? Or I went to the lesbian and gay center for my health care. 
and it was a Monday night and there was an ACTA meeting. So I thought I'd check it out, you know, and I realized, oh, like where you put your meeting is very important. If you choose your public meeting space to be a space that your community already trusts, already has a reason to go to, then that's really advantageous for getting your community to come be part of your group. And that was nothing that anyone told me or it wasn't anything that anyone decided, but it just emerged from looking at what were the themes, what were the tropes and the people's stories. And that's the piece of information that I think could be helpful to activists because this book is not about nostalgia. The purpose of this book is that we're in a time where huge numbers of people are trying to make change. And it's very hard to access activist information. And this was a movement that was partially successful. And why not share what we did, what that worked and what we did that did not work so that people today can have access to that information. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's so striking in the book. I mean, you, the, the, the book doesn't, you don't explicitly reference COVID. Presumably you were writing most of it before the before. pandemic, the current pandemic hit. Um, but it's it's clearly a history that's meant to be used, that this is a this is an exercise in finding, you know, a usable, radical, um, activist handbook, really, out of out of the lessons of of ACT UP. I mean, it did strike me that the, your your decision not to not to tell it chronologically, to structure it around these sort of flashpoints and actions and tropes and themes, does allow stuff to emerge that you know was a much less familiar story to me. Having sort of basically taken it on board as as you say as as a sort of subset of of gay male history that. These pivotal moments, one of the the really significant sections of the book about the campaign to change the definition of AIDS so that uh, it encompasses symptoms that afflict women, symptoms that disproportionately affected the poor, people of color, that that that's sort of front and center in the book in a way that it hasn't been elsewhere, I don't think. It's been entirely ignored. And in fact, you could say you could argue that it's ACT UP's most far-reaching victory. Mm-hmm. Because today, any woman in the world with HIV who takes a medication is taking something that was tested on women because ACT UP got women into experimental drug trials. So it's affected huge numbers of people, you know. And as Terry McGovern, who was the lawyer who filed the suit when she was 29 years old, says in the book, when she looks at AIDS hotlines or posters, uh, I mean, AIDS um, timelines or posters, they always have Rock Hudson at the airport and they never have the CDC definition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's, that's extraordinary. And just the, the I mean, it, it's, it's an amazing moment in the book too, where, where people begin to realize that women can't get onto experimental drug trials and they're not excluded as women, they're excluded as people who are prone to pregnancy. It's <laughs> just this, this well, it's quite extraordinary sleight of hand. It's because of the thalidomide scandal in the 1960s when pregnant women were given thalidomide and had children who were missing limbs. And then pharma had to pay out all these settlements. So they were like, okay, no women. You know, and it's interesting how the movement found out about it was this, it's this actress named Rebecca Cole, who had come from the Midwest to make it in New York and was working as a bartender. And she gets a job at this thing called the AIDS hotline, which was like a random joke. You know, it was like a bunch of actors getting paid $10 an hour because nobody knew there were no treatments. Nobody knew what caused AIDS. People would call them. They didn't know what to say. 
And this woman calls from Connecticut and says, you know, I have AIDS and I was denied um, admission to a trial because I'm a woman. And Rebecca thought, well, that's ridiculous. So she starts calling all these trials and finds out that none of them will take women. And then she just on her own calls the CDC, makes an appointment, goes to see them. And this is the beginning of the movement in solidarity with women with HIV. It's remarkable, but it also was a great insight for me and Jim into what these active people have in common. And this was in year eight of interviewing. And we realized, oh, it's not experiential, it's characterological. These are people who cannot be bystanders. Yes. And, yeah. and that's why they're so effective because there's not very many of them. I mean, the, the meetings are packed, it's three to 700. The biggest demonstration only had 7,000 people. This is not a mass movement. This is a real vanguard movement, but very, very effective. Yeah, and effective at a time and in circumstances where odds were that they wouldn't have been, where the stakes were so high, where the difficulties were so intense. So what are, you've, you've said that in, your intention in this book is to, is to create resources really for future initiatives. What, what are the lessons of this history for us now? Well, the number one lesson is that ACT UP was not a consensus-based movement. And that's very important. ACT UP practiced a radical democracy with big tent politics. It had a one line statement of unity, which was direct action to end the AIDS crisis. And that was direct action as opposed to social service provision. So if you were doing direct action to end the AIDS crisis, you could do whatever you wanted. So if you came in to ACT UP with the proposal that you wanted to do illegal needle exchange to get arrested, to provoke a trial, and I thought that was ridiculous. I wouldn't try to stop you from doing it. I just wouldn't do it. If instead I wanted to in interrupt mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral and you thought that was terrible, you just wouldn't go. And I would find like-minded people and do it. So in this way, everyone was allowed to be where they're at. And that's like a very important lesson for politics. People can only be where they're at. So trying to force everybody into one analysis or one strategy, it's a fail. It always fails. There's no exception to that. You know, but, but a movement that allows people to act from where they are, what it, that produces is a simultaneity of action. So you had all this different kind of stuff going on in so many realms, on so many issues, in so many ways at the same time, that that's really what produced the paradigm shift. So that's like the number one message. Forget about forcing people to all think the same. Get small silos of like-minded people to do projects that make sense to them and stand with each other in a big tent. The second thing is direct action not social service provision. It's direct action that creates wins. It's bureaucracies that implement policy. You know, and, and a political movement is an action movement. Once you're doing social service, you're not in a political movement anymore. So like ACT UP did not apply for money, did not, nobody was paid. You know, there were these lawyers who did thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of cases. They never got paid a penny. It was, an, it was a movement. You know, it's not an, uh, a business. So that was very important. Another thing is that women and people of color never stopped the action to do consciousness raising around race or sexism. What they did instead was they developed actions that supported their constituencies, whether it was the Latino caucus 
going to Puerto Rico to start an AIDS activist movement there, whether it was women fighting to change the CDC definition, and they would rally the resources of the larger organization for those project campaigns. And that is the way to go because you could spend your whole life trying to change one person and you'll never change them. So it's not worth it. You know, just keep your eye on the prize and stay active. Another big lesson is action first, not theory. Maxine Wolf, who's one of the most respected leaders in ACT UP, she observed that theory emerges from action, which is very contrary to what the left always believed, which was this Gramscian praxis, right? Um, but instead, she's like, if you focus on action, you will have to, you will have questions about how to do your action. And when you answer these questions, your theory will emerge because you have to cohere your values and that that's the way to go. And we've seen all seen all kinds of movements drown in theoretical debate that's not attached, that's not applied, it's not attached to action. ACT UP never allowed that. So I think like those principles in the big will help everybody. And then there's a lot of things about how to do civil disobedience training, how to think about media. You know, I, there's a lot of practicals throughout the whole book. Great. Brilliant. And I guess my final question is, you know, you've you've said that the the bad histories start started to come out. And this is partly part of the book is, is attempting to redress them. How would you like this book to be used by future historians of of HIV AIDS and AIDS activism? They just need to know that people must choose strategies from their social position. And I juxtapose three different campaigns inside ACT UP to show you how different the access level was. So you have in one case, Larry Kramer went to Yale was the guy who headed Bristol Myers Pharmaceutical Company. So he gets a meeting and he goes in with Mark Harrington who's a very brilliant person, a Harvard graduate, and they have a meeting and the, it, there's a catered lunch and everything's great. The women, it takes them two years to get a meeting. They can't even get the meeting. And they have to do all kinds of crazy things. They scream at people in airports. They handcuff themselves to people. They break into offices. It's messy. There's no respectability politics. And it was hard. It took them four years. Most of the leaders of the movement who were HIV positive were dead by the time that they won. But they did win. And then you juxtapose that with the, the IV drug users in ACT UP. And they were totally messy. I mean, they, two people OD'd and died in the organization. One guy stole $10,000. I mean, it was, but they also won. Whoever you are, you can win. But based on your social position, it's, you're gonna have to be messier and it's gonna be harder. And so it's a real argument against respectability politics. That's great. Thank you. Okay. So it's been terrific <laughs> talking to you. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Sarah Schulman for taking part in this podcast. Her book, Let the Record Show, A Political History of ACT UP New York, is available wherever you buy books. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.